Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Namihi Nui, and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance ho. Later on, we visit a university lab where researchers are doing interesting things with plants. But first up, on the 22nd of February 2011, Christchurch experienced a severe earthquake, resulting in much loss of lives, destruction and liquefaction. Over the past few months, we've been talking with experts about what we've learned from events like this. Misko Subranovsky is a University of Canterbury geotechnical earthquake engineer. He's interested in how the ground, and consequently how buildings and other structures such as pipes, respond to shaking. His speciality is liquefaction, which was a notable feature of both Canterbury earthquakes. Misko is part of the Quake Core Centre of Research Excellence. He was involved in SKIRT, the Stronger Christchurch Infrastructure Rebuild Team, which was created immediately after the 2011 earthquakes to rebuild Christchurch's damaged horizontal infrastructure. Think water and sewage pipes. I meet Misko in his office at Canterbury University and begin by asking him to describe liquefaction. Liquefaction is a, a ground response during earthquakes in which the ground pretty much turns from a solid matter into a fluid medium and as a consequence it becomes very soft very deformable, and is affecting detrimentally uh, land and structures. Uh, liquefaction always results in large ground movements, and those movements are, are damaging uh, for both land, small buildings, large buildings, as well as uh, buried infrastructure. Yeah, so that moment where the ground turns from solid to liquid doesn't last for very long, but the consequences of what happens during that phase exactly. last for a long time. Exactly. Actually, uh, development of liquefaction is only few, in few seconds during strong earthquakes. So during the February 2011 earthquake, it took two, three, four seconds to liquefy the loose soils in the eastern suburbs of Christchurch. And then there is a period of uh, a minute or two where that uh, effect of liquefaction remains very strong, during which uh, large deformations and effects occur. And then it takes really hours and days for the soil to get back to the equilibrium state. But the consequences of liquefaction are extremely severe. And as you rightly pointed out, we still feel them 10 years later. So during something like the Christchurch earthquake, when there was widespread liquefaction, how deep down is that going? The liquefaction usually can go quite deep, but uh, the most damaging liquefaction is close to the ground surface. And in Christchurch, we were focusing on the top 10 meters, and in particular, the top 5 meters of the ground are really the most damaging. 
In some cases, you may get liquefaction at larger depths, 15, 20 meters. And in those cases, the effects of liquefaction will be much less damaging. Actually, quite often, and that is one of the results of our in-depth studies, you find that uh, liquefaction in large depth can prevent manifestation of liquefaction effects on the ground surface. So actually it can serve as a mitigating factor for liquefaction damage. And that was one of the great findings of our research, I would say, where we explained why in some areas, despite the fact that there are liquefiable soils close to the surface, the effects of liquefaction were negligible or non-existent. So in that sense, where does liquefaction occur first is critical for the response of the ground and effects on structures. So if you get a layer of liquefaction that's quite deep, it, it can be protective in a sense. Correct. We have deep liquefaction, once that uh, soil behaves in a fluid-like manner, then it basically acts as an isolation mechanism. So the earthquake waves hitting that layer are going to actually reduce in amplitude, and as a consequence, you're getting different types of response at the surface and different level of shaking. And that minimizes the uh, loads to the structure. Uh, depending on the type of the structure, those loads can be detrimental, but in many cases, they are beneficial. And surely, in those cases, if deep liquefaction occurs, the ejector, the liquefied soil, may not reach the ground surface. So you will have absolutely no evidence at the ground surface that something happened at the depth. Now, to get liquefied soil, you need liquid in there. So what are the characteristics of the ground that make it susceptible to liquefaction? So there are a few major ingredients in the cookbook for liquefaction. So first, you, you need to have liquefiable soils, and those are typically sandy soils, like silt, sand, and gravels are those type of soils that are liquefiable. Clays are non-liquefiable. So once you have liquefiable soil then they have to be saturated uh, with uh, water. So the, the groundwater, which we don't see, actually is filling the voids of the soil uh, in the ground, and quite often it's quite high. So the water table, the top of the groundwater, is approaching the ground surface. So in Christchurch, the water table is just one to two meters below the ground surface meaning everything beneath that depth is fully saturated or all the voids in the ground are filled with water. So now if the soils that are liquefiable and fully saturated are relatively loose, when shaken by the earthquake, they tend to densify. So that kind of response of the ground is creating actually pressure in the groundwater. And that positive pressure is then separating the ground particles and the soil loses its structure and becomes a, a viscous fluid. And that is how liquefaction develops. So liquefiable soils, loose, fully saturated, shaken by a strong earthquakes, are the four ingredients you need to get liquefaction. Were you here during the Christchurch earthquake? Yeah, I was actually exactly in this office. And... At that point in time, what was your understanding of liquefaction and what would you have thought about it as a possible threat to Christchurch? Well, I, I had very good understanding of liquefaction. It has been the subject of my research throughout my whole career, so for nearly 40 years. So the shaking was so strong, all of these books from the shelves went down. It was immediately obvious to me that this was a very damaging event. 
and that I was expecting to see uh, a lot of damage to structures, and certainly liquefaction was something that I was expecting, knowing the very high liquefaction potential of crasher soils. I was still surprised when I saw it because, you know, I have gone to reconnaissance missions to maybe 10, 15 major earthquakes, and I have seen a lot of liquefaction effects throughout the world, including uh, five or six major events in J Japan, because I lived in Japan for 15 years. So I was surprised by how extensive and widespread the effects of liquefaction were. And probably it is the largest urban liquefaction on record in the world. We have 30, 40, 50 percent of the city area affected by liquefaction. So no one was prepared for something like that. Uh, the, the sheer magnitude and the extent of liquefaction was still surprising even for me. But of course, I could easily explain it. So what did you do after the earthquake in terms of getting out and doing research? So the first week, actually, I spent with one of my students, Eric Taylor. We spent about a week driving through the city and trying to map the severity of liquefaction throughout the city. And we produced the first liquefaction map. Because, you know, one of the things that we know quite well is that effects of liquefaction, the evidence of liquefaction is perishable. You, you lose it within a week or two. So we had to go quickly in the field and to capture evidence of liquefaction, which is going to quickly disappear. And that was really the initiation of, of our long-term research. And it went through different phases. In the following three or four months, I was in the field with all my students and, and colleagues, researchers, to really understand the effects of uh, liquefaction on, on different structures. We call those case histories. So for each case history, we had to document what exactly happened, what are the residual deformation, uh, what kind of uh, movements occur in the ground, on the structure, what was the damage to the structure. And then after finishing that phase of understanding what happened during the earthquakes, we go into another phase where we perform field and laboratory investigations now to characterize the ground where this happened so that we associate certain type of damage and manifestation to certain ground conditions. So that phase was quite long, as you would understand. A lot of testing was done in the field and in our laboratories. Then we move into the next stage, which is we use now that data that we have compiled from field investigations and the observations, and we do analytical studies now to use mathematical models to explain what happened and to see how good our models are. These are type of models and procedures that engineers would typically use in practice. Some are simple and used on a daily basis, and some are very advanced and used for very special and important structures. So we really tried to go through that kind of process through uh, first understand what happened, then characterize the ground so that we have enough input for detailed assessment so that we can scrutinize existing procedures and improve them. Our final goal is to improve those procedures. And uh, you, we apply to that to a very wide spectrum of structures and, and ground conditions starting from residential buildings and residential land, CBD buildings, so multi-story buildings, horizontal infrastructure and bridges, 
portable and wastewater networks, buried pipelines. So really we covered uh, all the important uh, structures and infrastructure services for the city because they all did require special attention. There was huge damage to all of those. So that was our overall process. And we are now at a point where we can identify key findings and identify some key aspects of behavior that allow us to make major changes in the engineering procedures, including guidelines that provide important input to engineers in their evaluation process. Can you give me an example or two of that? Oh, there are several examples. The, the first quick example was the work of SCIRT and uh, the effort to recover portable water service and waste, wastewater services of, of Christchurch. They need to do that quickly because they need to reinstate services as quickly as possible. So there was no time for some in-depth and long-term research. So they were pretty much saying somewhere in March and April when we had the first meetings, they were like, look, we are repairing the infrastructure. We are spending $50 million a month, but we really don't have well-established procedures for how to treat liquefiable ground because they suddenly occurred. So the first thing we did was, based on the liquefaction map that I did mention before, we developed a liquefaction zoning map, which was providing key details for design of uh, buildings and infrastructure against liquefaction problems. And that was pretty much provided to skirt somewhere in uh, June-July 2011, very, very quickly. Other particular instances where we improved guidelines is our understanding of the importance of uh, system response effects or interactions between different layers in the deposit, which is related to the previous discussion on, on deep liquefaction. We identified that uh, even when you have similarly weak deposits close to the surface, it's important what is beneath those deposits and how those deeper layers respond. And we have identified actually a number of typical deposits and interaction mechanisms that intensify liquefaction manifestation, where the, the deposit or the system is going to make things worse, as opposed to deposits and systems where they mitigate liquefaction manifestation. So despite having something very weak close to the ground surface, you're getting completely opposite effects, very severe liquefaction on one hand and no manifestation of liquefaction at all on the other hand. So that is one significant contribution which is now pretty much becoming a, a standard consideration in the assessment of liquefaction and a very important one. So for something like water pipes, wastewater pipes, um, drinking water pipes, is the idea that you just have to avoid particular areas or is there particular me mechanisms that you can use as you're laying the pipes that will allow them to, I don't know, flex or move yes. or do what they need to do? That's a very good point. And, you know, engineering solutions are always a spectrum of solutions. Uh, avoiding the land is one of them. And then there are many other engineering solutions which require smaller or larger intervention to get where you want to be in terms of performance. And obviously, if the ground is with very high liquefaction potential, then the question is how much investment and are you prepared to go into something that is going to fully mitigate? And the answer to that is no. So it's always mitigation is never trying to make things bulletproof and, and safe against liquefaction, but it's trying to achieve performance that is acceptable for the present society. 
which means we are going to have limited, limited investment in better performance, considering that, you know, always the, the money for that kind of intervention is either limited or non-existent. So really the engineering solutions are trying to find the optimal solution for a given time. Uh, portable water and those kind of services are really critical services for a city, and you don't want to compromise too much there. But, for example, one way of dealing with it is to use uh, flexible pipes. Flexible pipes are just going to allow more relative ground movement, which will result in, in less damage. Then it's important how to use the joints, how to connect the pipes. If the joints are, again, flexible, allow relative movement between the pipes, instead of snapping at the joint, you will have still service available uh, despite the, the ground movement. Then how you build the trench. The trench can be less densified or more densified. If you make it more densified, it is going to better protect the pipe. What is the soil around the trench? So all those are, are important factors. And if we understand each of those, we can kind of anticipate what is going to happen during a small, moderate size, size or very strong earthquake. And on that basis, then we can decide what, it, what is the acceptable solution. So it's always really engineering is, is all about those kind of evaluations and considerations and picking up the best solution for a given time and societal expectations and capacity for investment. So when we say liquefaction, we tend to think of Christchurch now. What other New Zealand cities are prone to liquefaction, though, which need to be learning from the lessons that Christchurch learnt the hard way? As I said, there are several important ingredients, uh, liquefiable soil, fully saturated, and uh, also you need to have earthquakes of significant size which are affecting the area. And unfortunately, New Zealand does have many of those places. The situation in some cities is very similar to Christchurch, but then you have quite significant differences as well. For example, let's take Wellington, one of the bigger ones. The liquefaction in Wellington is, is affecting different soils. It's really all to do about reclaimed land and the liquefaction along the waterfront. Those are reclamations created in the last 150 years. Uh, some of those are quite recent, the largest ones where the port is, for example, was uh, reclaimed in the 1960s, 1970s. And they are quite thick. Some of those fields are 10, 20 meters thick. Unfortunately, they are composed of liquefiable soils, much of those, not all of them, but much of those reclamations. And they are relatively loose because the way they were constructed, they were simply dumping soils in the sea, so they are loosely deposited without any compaction. Of course, they are fully saturated because they were dumped in the sea. And we know that Wellington has very high seismic hazard. So clearly, we are expecting, and we saw during the Kaikoura earthquake, uh, severe liquefaction developing in some of those fills. So we have very intensive research studies on the Wellington waterfront at the moment. And the key there is really to try to understand how liquefaction is going to develop in the waterfront area for different sizes of earthquakes. If we have good understanding of that, then we can either mitigate some of the uh, very severe instances where liquefaction is occurring or do uh, alternative ways of, of, of treatment or, or even abandon some area if we think it's too expensive to, to, to mitigate. So the first thing is really to understand what is going to happen for different um, sizes of earthquakes. Once we know that, we would know how likely or frequently 
liquefaction episodes are, are going to occur. And then on that basis, as a society, engineers are going to pretty much enforce the decision of the society, what we want to do, and then we can do our design for pretty much everything or anything that we face. It's a matter of how big is the cost going to be in order to achieve the performance that is the, the one expected from, from people. Wellington Waterfront, uh, that is a very uh, intensive study and, and uh, extremely demanding. So we have performed over 200 uh, CPTs, which are field investigations in the waterfront area, covering pretty much the whole port and, and most of the waterfront. So is that you drilling down? Yes, you're pushing a cone and you're trying to understand what is the resistance of the ground. And on that basis, we are able to identify what types of soils we are dealing with and at what density state they are. Then we go, we recover samples, we bring them in the lab, we test them here, try to understand what the behavior of, the, of that material is. And then we go through the modeling process that I mentioned before. So we, are, we have just finished the simplified assessment and we are now moving into advanced analysis. In advanced analysis, we will be able, for example, to model the whole reclamation. We can put some wharfs next to it. We can put buildings on top of it, and we will shake all of it and see how different elements and systems as whole are going to behave to different sizes of earthquakes. Can you densify liquefaction-prone soil? I'm thinking, can you compact it in some way to make it less prone? Yes, and that is one of the most fundamental mechanisms that is used in ground improvement, uh, densification, and that was actually done. Uh, so the reclaimed land around Tepapa was uh, densified in that way, where a huge weight was dropped from 30 meters height on the reclamation, and in that process the weight was sinking in the ground for a meter or so, which is densifying the soil. So, yeah, densification is one of the principal and probably easiest to implement approaches, though uh, some of those are, are uh, difficult to execute in present society because of the environmental impacts on surrounding structures. There are different and, and more sophisticated technologies as well. Such you, as? You can uh, insert additional soil in the ground, uh, during vibration, which is going to obviously densify the surrounding soil because you're inclus in uh, increasing the uh, solid mass of the soil in the ground. You can uh, build underground walls by mixing soil with cement, which is going to solidify the ground. You can then create different compartments and use different geometries to, to achieve the performance that you're aiming to achieve, uh, there is a chemical ground improvement where you're using uh, different matters, in, in, including some bacteria, to solidify the ground. And those are, let's say, some of that is in the research domain. But there are all sorts of different ideas how to improve the ground and, and make it less prone to liquefaction. Thanks, Misko. Misko Supranovsky is a University of Canterbury geotechnical earthquake engineer, and he's a member of Quake Corps. This story is part of a series looking at what we've learned from major disasters. And you can find links to other episodes at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori, hei hōtaka e pānaki tō tātou au whānui. I'm Alison Balance and you're with Our Changing World on RNZ. Now, 
David Leung is a biotechnology researcher at the University of Canterbury. He's a man of many ideas, and he has many students trying to bring those ideas to fruition. I'm off to the lab to find out more. The main focus of our lab is plant biotechnology. So you're looking for technologies inspired by plants, based on plants? Oh no, we're looking for technology to, to use plants, to help plants, and to uh, develop better plants that can help to deal with some environmental issues. So what might be an example of an environmental issue that you've dealt with? For example, we heard a lot about nitrate in our water, nitrate in waterways, and so the two ways to, t- to look at it. We can look at technology to tell us how much nitrate in the waterways. Another way is look at technology to, to be able to take the nitrate out of the waterway. And so we have some plant-based material or biomaterial which we can make it, change it, so that it becomes a super nitrate remover. Nagisa Daraja is working on a way to remove nitrates from water. Hi, I'm Nagisa Daraja. I'm a PhD student. I'm originally from Iran. And we are working on nitrate removal from uh, aqua solution. And we use uh, bio-waste material, the abundant material in nature. So then what kind of bio-waste material are you using? Actually, because it's now under IP now. It's, it's confidential now. Yeah. Yes. But we make some modification, then we produce a powder that it can absorb nitrate. Uh, within 19 minutes, we can remove 95% of nitrate from water. And only 2 grams per liter, that's enough. That's very efficient. Yes. <laughs> and uh, after absorb the nitrate, we want to use it as a slow-release fertilizer. It's a double whammy. You're basically fixing the pollution problem, you're t- removing the nitrate, and then you're turning it into a useful fertilizer. That's exactly. good value for money. Yes, exactly. David says he's pretty excited with the success of Nagisa's secret powder, and although it's only been tested at lab scale to date, the pair are optimistic it will be useful in situations such as removing nitrates from effluent ponds on dairy farms. Staying on the theme of nitrate, another student, Trang Guen, is trying to create potatoes that require less nitrogen to grow and will therefore need less fertiliser. My name is Chang, PhD student in David Lab, and I work on potato. So uh, my project is aimed to produce a potato can grow well under low nitrogen condition. Yeah. And currently we get the potato can live well in the in vitro condition. The nitrogen is like 116 compared to the normal condition. So you're getting your potatoes to grow with 116th of the nitrogen they normally need? In the in, in vitro condition. So you've got a whole lot of little pottles. Yeah. So they're little pottles with little plants growing in them. So are those yeah. like so miniature potato plants. Yeah. <laughs> and like now I put two months in low nitrogen condition, really low. 116 compared to normal condition. And you can see really different between the two plants. That one looks dark and healthy. Yeah. And this one looks pale and yeah. It's struggling, I would have to yeah. say. So now we have this um, apparently efficient nitrogen efficient plants, meaning they only need very little nitrogen and they can do well in the lab, right? So the intention is we want to release these plants to any growers 
would like to try them out in New Zealand. Potatoes that need little nitrogen aren't the only new variety of plants that David is thinking of. Student Gautam Janardhanan is working with peas. My name is Gautam Janardhanan and I'm from India. My primary focus is on developing plants with enhanced cold tolerance, tolerance to cold. So I'm trying to work on peas. So what we're trying to look at is like increasing the cold tolerance of plants during the winter seasons. So usually plants prone to stress like temperature especially, they lose their viability or their capability to reproduce during the high temperature or low temperature peaks. So how cold tolerant will cold tolerant be? What, can, what temperatures do you think they could tolerate? So when it comes to cold temperature stress, there's a two different scenarios. You have chilling tolerance and a freezing tolerance. Anywhere the temperature drops below zero, it's called freezing. And the temperature between 0 to 15, it's called a chilling stress or cold stress. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to do the same like a nitrogen one. We're trying to select a plant cells which is resistant to cold or heat, which can withstand extreme temperatures and grow in the normal conditions. I'm trying to use an amino acid analog as a selective agent, and I select the plants, giving them different concentration and pick the best one that's surviving the stress. And we try to evaluate them in the glasshouse conditions. Once we get the seeds from the F1 generation, we try to sow in the field and look for if this character is being transferred to the offsprings. So your project goes from the lab to the glasshouse exactly. and then into the field. Right, that's right. That's so do you have some promising candidates? Yes, we have got some promising lines that's been giving best results right now. Back to David. Where do you get wood from? You grow trees. You grow trees. That's the only way at the moment. And, well, we also heard about that growing trees is good for the environment because it's a carbon sink. It produces oxygen. So we have a plantation for 30 years and then chop it down, right? So I asked the question, hey, is there another way we can grow wood without the need to chop down trees, without the need to, to disturb this uh, carbon sink in the world. And then I had a conversation with the Space Exploration Program in USA, and we're talking about someday we want to have space stations up there, right? We need to build things and so on. It's not practical to bring timber from Earth up there. You want to create wood in space? Yes. We don't want to bring timber up there. So the way that I see it is we can grow cells from trees and then start to learn about how to make those cells to become wood cells, to become a wood structure, a timber. Okay. So how do you go from a flask of cells to a piece of wood? To grow wood without growing the trees is a really long journey. And I have broken it up into many, many different stages. And the first stage I realised is we really need to learn how to convert ordinary tree cells into wood cells. And more importantly, converting them into a structure, just like the wood found in the trees. Sabai so Shui is the student tasked with trying to grow wood without growing trees. My name is Sabai. 
Yeah. And you're working on this challenge that David has set of how to make wood without growing trees. Yeah. So how are you going about doing it? I just replant tissue from the outside tree and gotcha on the nutrient median. I give nutrient what they want and also I give hormone to produce stem cells. Stem cells are unorganized cells. Yeah, so we, we humans have stem cells and you've got tree stem cells yeah, at this yeah, point. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you're going to have to give them commands to make yeah, of specific course. kinds yeah. so of cells. I, I give different hormone combination, concentration and also different treatments. Uh, now I, we got uh, wood material in the cell culture. That is our, yeah, very big achievement. Sabai has managed to turn undifferentiated stem cells into wood cells that contain lignin and show a xylem-like structure. Made not by a tree, but in the lab. She does acknowledge it will be a while before we're growing wood in space. Thanks, everyone. David Leung is a biotechnology professor at the University of Canterbury and Nagisa Daraja, Gautam Janardhanan, Trung Gwen and Sabai Shui are all PhD students in David's research group. And that's the show. You can listen again, find photos and links or subscribe to our email newsletter at our webpage rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. You can also subscribe to us as a podcast and keep in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter where we are RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. I'm Alison Balance. Catch you next time. Paul Marie. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.